This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. We are hunters, anglers, riders, and sometimes chefs. Our passion for the outdoor lifestyle motivated the foundation of Harvesting Nature, which serves as a media outlet built to inspire and educate the outdoor expert and novice alike. Our podcast focuses on the technical side of cooking wild fish and game, while also incorporating adventures and lessons learned from our pursuit of wild meat. Join us on our journey of Harvesting Nature. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvest of Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, today we got a, another special guest with us. Uh, we got Ryan joining us today. Hey, Justin. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man. And uh, we got Corey here with us too today. How are we doing? We're, we're doing great. Good. But um, <laughs> just uh, first off, we'll go over a quick few quick updates on our um on uh some happenings in the world of of harvesting nature i guess uh last last uh podcast you listened to we talked about that um podcast two zero podcast 20 discount code for the shop so that's still in uh, that's still in effect and we also just released new ball caps and some new um a new t-shirt for the adventures for food podcast. So pretty cool little design of a, a guy paddling up a river, a guy or gal, uh, not specific there on that intentionally, but, um, a individual paddling up a river with a, uh, in a canoe with, uh, some deer antlers and some fish and stuff in his canoe, just to symbolize the kind of get out there and adventure for food. Um, all that. So I hope that you've listened to our now two uh, episodes of Adventure for Food. So our first one, Sean West covered his his turkey hunting story out in in British Columbia, and then 
most recently, you can hear uh, Brad Trumbo's story on there on Adventure for Food. I don't know, Corey. What uh, what are your thoughts on on uh, that particular story? It's good. It's good. Interesting. It was. It was. I got to hear it firsthand when he was telling it when we were recording it, and it's nice to, you know, hear the enthusiasm of of the guys when they're telling their stories. So that's what that's what I was going for when I came up with the idea. So nice. Well. I'm glad we're getting to ring true to that. But uh, also just to share a couple. So I guess last week in the article rotation we have was sort of uh, uh, my week to shine. So you got to see two recipes from me as well as an article on a, a recent uh, deep drop fishing adventure that we had uh, off the coast here in Key West where we got a, a little rain, a little sea swell, and a little bit of fish. Eh, we need a little bit of fish. We got a decent amount of fish, which is okay. Um, but we had a, a great debate ensued as a result of some of the fish that we caught and, uh, I'll, I'll toss around the term bonita and bu- bonita and bonito, uh, two, two different fish that the names are almost used synonymously. So, uh, there was a lot of confusion and debate, uh, once we got back to the dock and they told me that part of the, the, the meat was going to get used for bait. And I was like, eh, I don't think so. So, um, also, too, out of that group of uh, group of articles, you you saw the wild game mop sauce recipe, which is out phenomenal recipe. Uh, really enjoyed preparing that. It is a little time consuming, so if you got some time on a Saturday or Sunday or holiday day on a Monday, crank up the smoker and and go at it with a with a whole a whole leg of of game and use that mop sauce, which is pretty good. And then also too. Just last Friday, we had the, uh, it was a tuna burger that I made using some of the uh, uh, debated fish, um, and we cranked out some delicious tuna burgers, which I did on the, actually in the cast iron pan on the grill, or not on the grill, cast iron pan on the stovetop, which uh, ended up coming out really tasty, but uh, just a great like combination of, uh, of things in there, use some spinach, spicy mayo things like that so if you dive deep into that recipe you'll uh you'll i think you'll enjoy it question for you yes i I am i am hopefully going steelhead fishing here with one of our uh field staff writers john peak here in uh coming up in october and typically i just smoke the fillets of the steelhead but do you think i could use that burger recipe with steelhead, I know it's a little it's a little fattier than than what tuna would be. Do you think it would it would yield similar results? Um, I would. So the key is just um, hmm. I I think the key is just making sure you got some good binding in there that you're able to keep it sort of together. Um, like I used panko in the recipe, and a lot of people. Uh, we'll use egg and stuff like that, but I didn't cook it all the way through just because with the tuna, I didn't have to. Um, so that's just something to think about too. Like if you're going to think of almost like kind of a crab cake consistency. Okay. I don't, I don't know, Ryan, if you, if you have any experience making like fish cakes or anything like that, please, please chime in. Cause I definitely don't claim to be the, the expert on some of the, the other species of fish too. Mm. Yeah, I haven't done a ton of them. Um, 
but I've, I guess when I've done it, I've usually gone with just, you know, eggs and stuff, some breadcrumbs and usually it holds yeah. together. All right. I, I don't, I'm in thinking about it. I'm wondering if you might try it both ways. I mean, if you end up with a couple, like try some, like cooking it in sync with the tuna burgers. So where you're, you're starting off with like raw fish and then on the other side of it, start where you're making sort of like a, like I said, a crab cake where the fish is already maybe grilled and then you flake it up and then mix it into like a cake and then, you know, sear it in a, a skillet or something. It might be worth a try to try it two different ways. Yeah, I got to catch some fish first, though. Well, that's always the first step. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that weekend <laughs> is, uh, I think it's going to be fun-filled. Uh, I think Friday I'm going to try to get out archery hunt with my dad. And then that is the opening, that Saturday is the opening day of duck. And I was invited to uh, a friend's property that they have some prime duck hunting spots. So, and then steelhead fishing the the next day. So I am, I'm looking forward to that weekend. Um, yeah, I'll be, I think that same weekend I'm going to be up in, uh, in the back country in Wyoming. So I'll be MIA for, for a couple of weeks. You'll just be listening to a past version of myself uh, on the podcast, which is okay. But um, yeah, we're gonna have fun. Uh, we're we're doing some alligator hunting in Florida, Wyoming, backcountry, antelope, and mule deer. So should be fun. Really, really excited. Um, let's see. So Ryan, do you have any uh, any upcoming plans or adventures planned out for the? The fall seasons here yeah this uh this upcoming weekend actually is the first uh real kind of adventure i guess for the fall um we've got a hunting property up northern minnesota um my wife's family it's like an old family farmstead essentially uh has turned into the hunting shack so getting the kids out there with me and i mean they're, they're pretty young still like three and five so it's like essentially just having fun with them, you know, getting them out there, walking around the woods, um, tons of apple trees and stuff so they can eat themselves sick <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> grouse season's open. So we'll get some grouse hunting in and waterfall season opens this weekend. So we might try that too. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this weekend. Nice. Corey, where are we, where are we just talking with, uh, we're talking with Tyler France over in, uh, in Pennsylvania and he, his, uh, his claim is that grouse is the best upland game bird to eat. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> I, I mean, I love it. I, I grew up hunting grouse. Um, and so it's, it's definitely my favorite. Um, nothing wrong with pheasant or, you know, any other sharp tails and stuff, but I, I love rough grouse. So, man, that's awesome. I, yeah, I have yet to, uh, shoot a grouse i think i'm gonna have to put that in the works for for this year um i don't even know if we had them growing up if we did we certainly didn't hunt them but um yeah we'll see i'll, I'll put it on the books <laughs> Do it. yeah they're a fun bird to chase how's the population up, Corey, up, up your way go ahead how's the population it's really good yeah no it, they're doing really well in minnesota um the last last year was kind of hit or miss depending on where you went um but it's they're kind of on the downward cycle they've got like a 10-year cycle you know so it's 
they're kind of on the the downward swing here, but it's still really good hunting versus, um, you know, you head east more. Wisconsin has some good hunting, um, the UP, Michigan too, but um, as you head further east, it can be a little hit or miss too. Yeah, How's Pennsylvania. That? I know Pennsylvania, they've struggled. Yeah, they, it seem like they they're on a, a downward trend for a while. I don't know. I've heard like West Nile, and then definitely habitat loss and stuff. So mm-hmm. it it's it's a little more rare to see them now than what it was when I was a kid. So Ryan, what's your what's your favorite way if you had a go to way to prepare grouse? Like- Usually. <laughs> I think my go-to is just uh, really simple um, kind of toss them in the pan and just like slowly kind of sear them with some butter, butter in there and some herbs. Um, I'll just usually use whatever I've got. I've got like rosemary, thyme and stuff and just kind of let them sit in the pan and spoon butter over it. Um, Ooh. In the cast iron pan. It takes a while, but it's, um, it's kind of a one person meal, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's worth it. That's perfect. Worth the wait. Yeah. Nice. Um, well, we've already talked uh, a, a little bit now about where you're from, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into hunting and, and what primary hunting types you do? Yeah, sounds good. Um, so like I said, I, I grew up kind of small town, northern Minnesota, um, which was great because I had tons of fishing and hunting, you know, all year round. I mean, I probably do more ice fishing than, you know, open water fishing. And, um, hunting opportunities were great. So it's, it was tough to beat growing up, uh, during college and work, I bounced around a bit, um, lived in Chicago for a while and went to Africa for a semester in college and um, oh, wow, kind of bounced all over, but ultimately settled back in Minnesota. Nice. So yeah, it's, we grew up a very outdoorsy family. Um, I know we were talking before the show, but my, my dad and my mom would take me out hunting um, dad mostly for like grouse hunting and then my mom and dad both hunted uh white-tailed deer with me um, as well as the rest of the family it's uh it's a big like deer camp culture for sure mm-hmm. so the grandpa uncles great uncles everyone would kind of go out and put up a little camper village out in the woods and uh those are very special you know much appreciated kind of time of the year so that's Absolutely. really what got me hooked it's just I- that that camp experience I, I grew up very much the same, uh, coming into hunting and like my grandfather, my uncles and like extended uncles and, you know, friends of friends and all that. And, uh, hunted with a, a group of guys that, that had a pretty solid like deer camp. It was like a metal barn and they all had campers around it, but everybody would come in and hang out around like a big campfire ring in the middle. Like you can't, to me, like it, it's really hard to beat like that whole deer camp experience especially mm-hmm. especially as a kid you know and yeah. uh i i think too we're gonna talk a little bit about it more but like people coming into hunting and getting introduced into that of like that that camaraderie of of hunting and it's like i love to hunt public lands and all that stuff too but i also like to reflect back on those kind of fond memories of a uh, of growing up with deer camp yeah yeah for sure so um I guess let's talk a little bit about, we talked about go-to grouse recipes, but what's a, you you have a a good repertoire of recipes, both on your website, which uh, 
can you go a little bit into detail about your website so we reference that people understand what we're talking about? Yeah, good idea. Um, So I I guess about five-ish years ago now, um, started a website called Zero to Hunt. And essentially it was, uh, as I moved around and stuff, I, um, especially like in Chicago and stuff, I met a lot of more people and coworkers, friends that really liked the idea of hunting. And, um, and when I would bring in wild game dishes or something, they would try it and they loved it, but they had no previous experience. You know, their families and friends didn't hunt or, uh, maybe they grew up in the urban area with no access. And so I found myself explaining things a lot more and trying to give advice and get people out and, at one point or another, I figured I might as well start a kind of a blog to expand the reach a little bit and help others. So that's, that's kind of how zero to hunt started. Um, and the whole, I guess, idea behind it was really focusing on that food aspect. You know, it's, that was always the central kind of piece that people were interested in is trying whatever wild game dish I had brought into the office or something. And the conversation would expand from there and, eventually kind of get people more interested in it. So it's that good old, I really appreciate this term. I, I've heard it tossed around before, but it really, um, I was talking with the, a couple of the ambassadors and the community manager from hunt to eat, uh, several episodes ago. And, and they introduced me more thoroughly into the term venison diplomacy. And it's (laughs) like, it's now Corey can attest to this. One of my favorite terms (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh because it just it just rings so true yeah i I remember even like last fall i um went to like a little Oktoberfest party and brought some like venison sausage with uh homemade sauerkraut thinking no one else was really gonna get into it but it like disappeared immediately and started a bunch of other conversations so that's great it's a it's a good tool to use i think absolutely so um I will say that that kind of the the foundation of harvesting nature as well is is was uh, created very much on the same principles of sort of like that that center point being the food, but also being a uh, an inspiring and educational point for for people looking to to get more comfortable in the space or to just you know um, learn. I guess it's a good way to throw it out there, but. I definitely saw a lot of similarities when I was reading through the reading through your your information on uh, on the page there. Yeah, definitely a lot of the same goals. Yeah, which I think is awesome because I I also this is the other thing I talk about a lot is like kind of have a uh, we have a oh my gosh my mind just blanked um, we have a responsibility to like bring more hunters into the fold and more anglers and introduce them more to the sport, uh, so that we can, you know, continue, continue this sort of lifestyle. And especially if people are leaning forward and I'm not saying like, go out there and grab somebody by the ear and it's like, here, let me tell you about my hunting life. But it's like more, you know, people that are interested are showing an interest of, of coming into it. So. Yeah, it's, it's definitely important. I mean, I, I know when I was first looking into this, I was looking at uh, trends and hunting licenses and hunting participation and it was all just in decline, you know, kind of uniformly across the board. And, mm-hmm. and it definitely scared me because license dollars, the stamps, even firearm ammo, bow purchases, 
all of that provides, um, you know, some really necessary critical support for habitat programs and, and wildlife research that, um, frankly, is needed. And um, as a biologist, I mean, that's definitely near and dear to me, too, even though I'm not super involved in wildlife management tasks specifically. Um, mm -hmm. I've worked with a lot of people who are, and just because of the interest in wildlife, that's everyone should care about that. So, and, and I guess, what do you think is is one of the things that people should be more cognizant of, both getting into the space and then also looking to bring people into the space? Like, I think you know, the reason I guess behind it is um, there's a lot of overlap between people that. Um, maybe don't go hunting, but they enjoy the outdoors and stuff. And so if you, if you just look at it that way, um, buying hunting licenses or hunting equipment, all of that does support those programs that non hunters enjoy as well. Um, so that can be a good kind of talking point as well. And, you know, when you were uh, talking about responsibility earlier too, it's, um, it's pretty clear, I guess, without the, the funding to support it, the, the research and the habitat projects ultimately get left by the wayside because it's, it's not cheap to do those kind of programs. Um, and then ultimately wildlife populations suffer. And it's, so as I, I guess, as a father to two young kids is definitely, a, I feel that responsibility to, to get more people involved and um, kind of keep the fire lit, I guess, so to speak, so that my kids can enjoy similar experiences someday too. And I think, you know, is is people don't think of it, and a lot of uh, look. And I don't want to say this like in a, in, with a negative connotation, but you look at a lot of environmental groups and people who are environmentalists, and then you look on the opposite side of sort of like the conservationist as is the hunter or the angler, and and there's a lot to be said for what the hunters and the anglers do and how they contribute and sort of like hey, we want to protect this resources so we can enjoy it and we can pass it on to the next. And it's like, you know, I can say with confidence that that's probably a general consensus amongst most hunters and anglers is like, we want this to be here for the next person. I don't want to go out and be like, I'm going to shoot every whitetail in South Florida so that no one else can enjoy them. You know, right. I, it's like, I'm going to take, you know, what I'm allotted or what I'm allowed to and you know, obviously following the letter of the law. And of course, like in instances where it's like, bah, maybe it's not my time to take one. So, mm -hmm. and I think that's huge to focus on that continuation to the next generations. And, and so I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. So I guess that really kind of answers my question of like why you, one of the motivators of taking it on, but, uh, is, is sort of like a mission of like, um, what you enjoy doing, but is there anything else that factors into sort of why you decided to create this, you know, your website and, uh, move forward like that? Uh, th that was definitely the kind of the primary driver. Um, but again, just making those connections and, uh, trying to get, other people out as, as a new hunter. Um, it just became, it was, a, it was a lot of fun, frankly, getting to, getting to know people and trying to help them just get out. And even if I can't provide, you know, the exact advice, I mean, I, I do have a limited, I'm not an expert in everything by any means. Um, I'm pretty much a Midwest hunter. So, um, but there's a lot of similarities. You can definitely help provide some feedback and, 
um, yeah, a lot. It was a lot of fun. A lot of the 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 basis the basis mm-hmm. for a comparison across different r- styles of hunting is is the same, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is great. So, what's something that that you would give a good piece of advice if someone was looking to get into hunting, say they'd never been hunting before and they're listening to this podcast. Maybe they had some wild game at an Oktoberfest party and they're like, maybe I should start hunting. Right. Yeah. It's uh honestly, this is kind of probably never been an easier time in a way because of the pandemic and it, mm-hmm. it existed prior to it too, but you can take a lot of um, the introductory kind of hunting safety courses online now. Um, there's like hunter course hunter ed uh, a couple other options that you can just go through all the course um it kind of walks you through all the different hunting skills that you need to know obviously uh laws and regulations associated with it and then you follow it up with an actual uh firearm kind of safety range day and from that standpoint you're kind of ready to go after that so it's nice because you can just sit in the comfort of your home and take it versus um i've heard some people say they're they feel embarrassed kind of going to like a in-person class with a bunch of kids who are learning, you know, so that, that stigma is not there. Um, I guess another piece of advice that comes up is um, people get kind of spooked out on equipment thinking they're going to have to buy so much different stuff. And uh, depending on what you're hunting, that could be true. But I guess in that sense, my, my usual recommendation is to start with like small game kind mm-hmm. of upland hunting you don't need a lot of gear, just some good boots, uh, blaze orange clothing and like a shotgun. And you can go, uh, go chase squirrels or rabbits, um, grouse, my neck of the woods, there's quail. So it's, it's a good way to start exploring wild places on your own and just kind of get comfortable with the whole process without having to spend a whole bunch, bunch of money on the equipment. And I think, like uh down here a big one is like uh squirrel and and dove dove is probably a great uh introductory hunting because it's you know it's it's not super fast paced but at times it can be fast paced but you can also like sit back and sort of like have some good teaching moments yeah absolutely and there's there's something to be said too i guess about the emotions involved um for like a new hunter if the difference in shooting like a squirrel uh, versus like a deer is their first mm-hmm. one, uh, right or wrong. It's, it's definitely some differences there. And, um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of nice to start smaller, get more comfortable with cooking that one small animal, um, processing and butchering it yourself. And then once you get more comfortable with that process, you can kind of move up to larger animals too. Yeah. Processing uh, a deer for the first time can feel overwhelming versus a squirrel, you know, couple yeah. pounds of meat versus 100 pounds of meat right and just freezer space too i mean if you're a new hunter you may not have a big chest freezer or anything either when i was thinking the um just like to i i always kind of bring this up especially when i'm talking i think it's i'm very curious to learn especially like adult onset hunters and stuff of like that emotion point of not an emotion point, but sort of um, your responsibility and reluctance to to treat big game well 
to have to treat big game differently or like a fear of mistake or fear of failure. Like, Oh, if I, if I do this wrong, if I butcher it wrong, like I'm ruining this entire deer versus like, if I don't make this cut properly on this squirrel, like it's still a squirrel. And, you know, um, is, you know, like you both mentioned, like it could be very intimidating going into a, a large game animal for the very first time. And I mean, I remember back as a kid, it's just like you had kind of people hovering over you, but, um, but still, as I grew into adult, you kind of learn and you research and all that stuff. But it's, it's, at some points it's very much still a trial and error. Like, well, all mm-hmm. right, I've got my like proven method of like how I do it over and over and over again. But you know, before that, it's kind of like you have to work into it. And for somebody coming into it with a without that clean slate, it's like, all right, I've got this animal. But what do I do with it? But what if I mess it up? And I, you know, I'm always yeah. curious how people handle that. And it's varied, varied responses across the board. But um, yeah, it's sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 please. Uh, I was just to say it's. <laughs> like you said, growing up as a kid and stuff, I was always super nervous about doing the wrong thing, you know, Mm -hmm. cut it wrong or uh, miss something. But the more you do it, the more you realize, I mean, yeah, you might cut it a little differently or um, miss a chunk here or there or something, but you're not going to do anything. You can't mess it up necessarily. You know, it's still Mm -hmm. neat. Um, If you cut a little too thin and it's maybe it dries out a little when you're cooking, but for the most part, I mean, you can't mess it up too bad. Yeah. Agreed. Um, that's where also too, I think it's, it's good to have a, it's good to have a mentor and, and try to, if if you're someone coming into the, the sports, sports, hunting and fishing, we'll call them sporting events, but, um, is trying to find someone sort of already kind of comfortable and experienced in that space to, uh, to help you out. Yeah. Uh, having a mentor is, is huge. Um, especially for a lot of like adult onset hunters. I mean, in, in a lot of senses, they're, they're, let me back up, I guess. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, youth and women's programs that have popped up recently, which is awesome. Um, and I, I, they've had kind of youth programs for a while too, but mm-hmm. there really hasn't been much for just general new adults. Um, for the last couple of years, it's kind of changed, but um, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, adults obviously have, the ability to travel to different hunting locations. They have a job to pay for, you know, money to spend on gear and licenses. Um, they may have children that they can then teach how to hunt too. So it's, it kind of expands your impact as a mentor. Um, and honestly, without, without someone kind of doing that or even having another hunt, another new hunter to kind of co-learn with you. Um, a lot of people do kind of give up before they really, really get in too deep and um that's unfortunate so having a mentor however you can find one um is great but with that too i mean there's a kind of a huge caveat um you know mentor really needs to uh, be mindful of, of how they're acting and portraying it too um kind of get rid of their any kind of preconceived notions and just meet a new hunter where they're at too because they might might look totally different from them, um, different age, gender, ethnicity, political views, whatever. And so they just need to be mindful of like the language, the terminology they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could risk putting that person off. 
Um, so it's, it's a bit of a skill. And I, I think too, even the pace at which you share information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I've often talked about this too. And I, you know, I've reflected on it myself is like to look at, you know, as, as a mentor, like where does that mentor mentee relationship end? It's like, okay, we're going to go out hunting and I'm going to introduce you to this, you know, this activity. We're going to go out there. I'm going to show you how to do it. Hopefully, you know, we shoot something or catch something and bring it back. And it's just like, okay, well now that we've done that, like what's next, what a, you know, and I think it's up to the mentor to sort of think forward. And even people who are interested in mentoring, like you got to think past that, like first trip, that first adventure, like, how are you going to continue it? You know, what if this person calls you at seven o'clock on a Sunday evening and they're like, Hey, uh, I, you know, I went out deer hunting on my own and you know, I got this deer, like what, you know, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. Or you've taught them things and you know, they blank. I mean, it's natural, but, uh, I, I think it's important to mention that in consideration for, for people who are looking to mentor or even if you're unintentionally becoming a mentor is just like, well, what, how are you going to continue your relationship? Because like you said, it's easy. It's easy for somebody to get turned off by it, especially by bad experience. And it's not, it's not sort of telling everybody to be fearful. I, I hope not, but, um, right. No, it's, um, but to that point, yeah, it's it, as you're going through that that mentor mentee, I guess, process. Um, it is good to find ways to involve them in a bigger community somehow um, mm-hmm. that they can draw on as well. Instead of just having to come to you for uh, specific advice, they kind of develop their own network. Um, and honestly, one of the best ways is to, after a couple times of going out with someone, maybe they they invite someone else out and kind of co-learn, and then they can they teach each other stuff through that process as well um, and develop their own little network of hunting friends. But yeah, that's, that's huge to consider. So just kind of leaving them in the lurch afterward. Yep. I, I was really happy to see. So uh, Colin, who's, who's kind of on the podcast with us uh, consistently is uh, he just moved out to Oregon at the beginning of the summer and he and I started hunting here together and then out there he moved out and luckily he got linked up with sort of a group of hunters out there. Uh, and he and I was, we're still talking back and forth, uh, about, you know, geese hunting and waterfowl and stuff like that. But he found like a solid group of like four or five people to go with. And so now that's sort of given him that, uh, that group and that network of hunters out there that, that he can further his, his experience with, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really unique thing, you know, being in the military and moving new places is sort of a challenge sometimes, uh, you know, just like you mentioned, moving all over is, is just to kind of, as you go places and try to get your lay of the land and, and try to figure out, especially if you're getting different types of terrain and different animals and stuff out. So that's where finding those, uh, I would say like local experts, but finding people that you can link up with and sort of test the waters in that area makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, I, I pretty regularly tell people that um, if they're interested in a certain species or something, join, you know, a conservation group join like, um, so like here, rough grouse society or um, ducks unlimited pheasants forever. Um, any of those kind of groups and stuff that can really help you. Um, through different chapter events and stuff. I mean, they'll throw mm-hmm. different 
uh, knowledge sharing kind of things, seminars where you can learn new hunting techniques or as you stay involved, maybe you borrow gear from other members and yeah. get, get invited on a hunt or something. So I think that's, and, and that's we'll, another great, go ahead. And with, with those groups too, you get out of them what you put in. So if you just pay your dues and sit back, you're not going to get much out of it. You got to, you got to volunteer to do their habitat projects or go to the meetings or, you know, do the different events with them so that you can meet, meet the guys and, and the people that have the knowledge to learn from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just, I mean, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say they're, they're definitely the, the experts in their kind of respective species, I guess. So it's, any way you can kind of connect with others that are, um, you know, lifelong hunters in that certain species, like you're going to learn a lot. I was just, uh, just looking here, um, talking about groups to join and stuff, but the backcountry hunters and anglers and, uh, Corey, maybe you can speak a little bit more about the take two initiative, but I was looking at their map. So whenever you look at their website, they now have their chapter map and they just solidified a lot of chapters here in the last week or so, uh, new chapters. And so it's looking like almost the entirety of the, of the United States, uh, with the exception of like Hawaii and Delaware has some sort of chapter representation, which is pretty incredible. If you think about like a, a national, uh, group and there's several that do it. Um, but it's just cool to see the growth and expanse of that. Um, yeah, BHA has really blown up the last couple of years. They're, they're pretty much everywhere. And yeah, if you can get to like those pint nights that they do, I mean, it's, you, you get to meet a ton of great people. You make new connections and it's obviously harder now with uh, COVID. <laughs> but, oh, um, yep. <laughs> like they're still doing a good job with that where they can. I was, I was bummed. I was scheduled to go to the, uh, the rendezvous this year. It was kind of the mm-hmm. first year I'd pulled the trigger and I actually reached out to him and I was going to do some, some cooking demonstrations and stuff like that. And I was super, super bummed when it got, uh, when it got canceled, but yeah, as, as is life, unfortunately, but, um, Corey, can you tell us a little bit about the take two initiative? I, I think it's mainly for the Pennsylvania BHA, but, um, and, and I think it's, this is the second year that they're having it, but the initiative is for every, for every hunter to take out two people who have either never hunted or are in the beginning stages of their hunting career or are trying to reactivate their hunting interests. It's to get them back out and, and, and mentor them to, to, to be hunters. So, um, that's the, uh, they're trying to, to build up the ranks, you know, reverse the decline of hunting numbers. And so they're, and I, you know, with three kids, you know, I, I try to take my kids out and, and hunting. And so I, I, I'm more of a say as do as I say, not as I do. Cause I, I I'm taking a friend out who hasn't hunted before, but, uh, I, I try to take my kids out as much as possible. So. I think that's important too. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, my headphones just started acting all weird, but um, 
I, I think that's that's common, uh, Corey, throughout the different chapters as well. I think they all kind of have a similar similar thing, and that ties into the whole R three, which uh, also believe is one of one of the reason BHA has been kind of successful looking at it too. But yeah, I know like Minnesota, there's been a lot of a lot of events like that, and they've really um, they've nailed it. And I mean, they've definitely taken up the call to get more people out, and um, so yeah, it's it's great. And here, uh, down in Florida, our chapter here, uh, has been doing a lot of, of like small game hunts, just like we talked about. And then also they've been doing like sort of cooking, uh, after, which I think is really great because then you get like squirrel and you get to introduce the people and it ties in sort of really well, the, the food aspect of it, which is, you know, like you and I both mentioned is a lot that brings people into that back into the space or keeps them in the space. Yeah. Uh, which is really cool. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, Log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Here at Harvest in Nature, we are known to cook a variety of wild fish and game in a variety of ways. Probably one of my favorite methods is to cook in a smoker. Traeger Grills has some of the best products out there. Their pellet grills aren't just grills. they are smokers and ovens too. Anything you can do in the oven in your house, you can do on the Traeger. You can make desserts, you can grill steaks, you can use cast iron pans and braise tough cuts. You can allow roasts and briskets to smoke all day until they're tender and delicious. You can even use it to make jerky. Their variety of pellets are also very impressive. The different flavors of wood allow you to pair with your meat or fish or vegetables and give it the most flavor that you can create. They even have varieties created specifically for your next wild fish or game meal. I guess let's talk a little bit about food. <laughs> yeah. Since we're 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 leaning towards that direction. Um so you do have some recipes and stuff on uh on on your website there. What's uh what are some of your favorite recipes that you have? And then uh, I want to hear more about your your bone broth for sure. Yeah, that was a that was a fun one. Um so a couple of years ago, I think, I mean, it's obviously bone broth had been around forever, but it became like super trendy, you know, everything's got bone broth, you know? Um, so I guess in the sense of trying to use as much of the animal as I can, um, decided to start saving bones from the, the carcass that I'm, I'm butchering myself. So, uh, a lot of like the marrow kind of femurs, uh, marrow bones, joint bones, like the knee, um, a little bit of like the shoulder, I guess, too. But essentially, you save them. Um, you can roast. I, I roasted my bones first with a little bit of like the shank meat and stuff too. Mm-hmm. And then essentially, you just let it simmer all day with some whatever veggies and stuff you want, onions and celery, carrots and stuff. And um, by the end, I mean, it's, it is a gelatinous blob. It, it is amazing stuff. It's like pure gold. Um, <laughs> so I use it a lot to like just drop a blob into like deglaze a pan or mm-hmm. – uh, Add some to like soups and stews and stuff to kind of thicken it up a little bit. And you, you drink it like solo ever? 
I've done it once. That was enough for me. <laughs> well, I, I don't think I've ever, I mean, I've had like stocks and stuff, but uh, never sort of the, the bone broth. I always see it and I hear people, like you said, talking about it, but um, yeah, I don't know. It wasn't what, for me, but <laughs> to each their own, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, any other, any other recipes that, that really stand out to you that you really like? And I mean, I asked that question knowing that they're all your recipes. So it's hard sometimes <laughs> to be like, well, no, I don't like that one, but I like that one over there more. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy, like I said, like cooking like rough grouse that way and stuff. But I, I think venison is still my go-to at, for how much meat you get and um, all the different kind of cuts you can do with the different dishes you can do. It's just, I love venison. Um, but uh, I, I did write a piece for Outdoor News. Uh, I think it was last winter, maybe. Um, I was going through the freezer and found a bunch of various animals. And uh, <laughs> my wife and I love uh, watching like Great British Bacon Show. And they had the episode where they were doing like a wild game pie. And I was like, oh, nice. I, I got to try this. And um, so I used like venison. Um, rough grouse and I think it was snowshoe hare in that one and then you add a little bit of bacon and some other um, not a, not a ton of vegetables I mean it's really focusing on like the meat inside um, with a hot water crust pastry and uh, it's it's definitely a lot of work um, makes a lot of food so you better be hungry it's kind of like <laughs> a once a year kind of meal to make for us at least but it's worth it I mean, just for like the novelty alone um, mm-hmm pretty wild animal to or collection of animals to have together like that. That's pretty cool. And he, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I'd say like old world, but that like sort of European pie and they, they tend to also mix like a lot of different game animals together where I think in the U S um, you don't see that as much. Like people are like, all right, I'm gonna keep my pork over here and my venison here and my elk and just like, they may not cross the lines as frequently, but over there it's like, let's just, let's put it all in the pot or in the pie. Um, right. man, I, I love some of the pies and the pastry doughs and stuff that I'm trying to think. Uh, I traveled over to England, uh, back several years ago and like we were in this like little pub and it was in this little bitty town and it's just like, they had these giant like pastries, in these cast iron pans and it's like big puff pastry and you have to get through like eight layers before you actually get to the meat. But it's just like, Oh, it's so good. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's awesome. But also too, for outdoor news, you wrote a, a really cool venison shank stew recipe. And I'll, I'll have to say I'm, I'm really, I'm really digging all the shank recipes that have been popping up lately. Uh, yeah, I think for years people it, it made it to the grind pile, uh, and now people are finally starting to recognize it as its as its own cut more publicly, and which is which is awesome to see because it's such an awesome cut of meat. It is, and it, you know you're you're spot on there. I mean, growing up, it was always just tossing the grind pile, and that was you didn't think anything about it. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I started reading. I forget who maybe meat eater or something, but like also buco. And that's what mm-hmm. got me kind of hooked on the whole thing. And, um, again, just trying to find new ways of, um, preparing different cuts and stuff. But, you know, if you cook it just low and slow like that, I mean, it comes out 
super tender. I mean, fall apart, really silky, and um, it makes a great stew. I will say, so I've um, actually I did an article or a recipe a couple weeks ago, and it was a uh, it did smoked shank, and um, I, I think I did it. I was motivated to do it after our episode with Hank Shaw, and he's like, "Man, you just got to smoke, just smoke the crap out of those shanks, and then throw them in." But also, sort of after our conversation, and then in my also self realization as going through that recipe is that that uh shanks do not get any more tender uh whatever you smoke them <laughs> they, so you have to immediately follow them up and either like stew them or braise them uh which in that case i, I did braise them but yeah it's a uh, it's pretty interesting um when you think about it and i think it has to do a lot with the temperature at which um all those tendons and stuff start breaking down and mm. i think with the shanks and like doing an open smoke, uh, no wrapping in foil or anything like that. They, uh, you won't break those tendons down before the meat starts to really dry out, and you end up with like a jerky. Sure. Yeah. Or just toughen up for them. Anything. Yep. Yeah. So, but still well worth it because it imparted some great smoke flavors into it. Um, ended up with some great like sandwiches and tacos and tacos. I ate a lot of tacos, so. <laughs> um ended up that way but that's awesome and and also too so um we we share that in common of of writing for outdoor news both yourself uh cory and, and myself as well so yeah it's pretty great we had uh we had uh evie on the the podcast just the other day which was pretty great she's such a, a sweetheart yeah that was a great episode <laughs> thanks um let's see Corey, what's your experience with shanks oh i've done on the spot yeah uh, i've done osabuco and um and then i currently have uh probably two or four shanks in the freezer that are are waiting on on something so i might do a, a shank stew or or a, Yours was what a, a citrus shank, something. Yep. So I might, yeah, might it try. was a citrus smoked shank. I don't know. Maybe so, we can work on something together similar to the squirrel chili. Yep. But uh, I think you know we were focusing a lot on getting new hunters out into the into the field and getting them started. And like you said, venison diplomacy. So I think, you know, a lot of recipes that are simple, relatively simple to do and are familiar and are good are, are something that I, I think would help new hunters, you know, f further into the realm of hunting. And I think we have a lot of, a lot of recipes on our website that, that, fit that bill pretty well um mm -hmm. there there's a new one on there in the last few weeks it's that black bean and uh chorizo venison burger so everybody loves a uh, loves a good burger right mm -hmm. so yeah. that that i think that one was uh that uh, that was an interesting take on a on a burger with the black bean and chorizo in there so i i, I thought that was uh 
that was a good one that a new hunter might might want to try. I thought it was interesting to put the black beans in there with it because generally you think about a burger and it's like you have a black bean burger or you have like a meat burger. Like my uh, when we go out, like my wife doesn't uh, eat red meat or well, she just eats fish only, so she'll often get like a black bean burger or something like that. But it's always uh, it's a uh, it, it was an interesting when I saw the two together and it made me it immediately thought about like chili. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but yeah, um, it's good that you bring that up, though. And I think it's sort of Ryan. What's what's your take on that as far as like introducing people to new recipes? Do you think that there's you can go too gourmet or too simple? We have to kind of do we have to find a, a middle of the road aspect on that? Uh, it, it probably. I mean, definitely depends on who you're presenting it to, I think. Um, Cause like I mentioned, even with like that Oktoberfest example, I mean, it was just, I, I didn't think many people would really be interested to be honest. I just loved it. So I was like, I'll bring that and I'll, I'll eat it all myself, I guess. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've also had, um, if it's a fairly, fairly fresh kill and stuff, I've had, um, you know, sort of like venison heart to people that have never tried venison before. And once they kind of get over the like squeamish factor of like eating the organ meat, um, they said they really enjoyed it. Um, but I, I, I do think that, you know, simple, if you can like present something that is, um, like Corey said, like recognizable, like a taco or a burger mm-hmm. or something and just kind of sneak it in there without them really knowing, um, that's, I, it's probably going to win them over pretty easily. I think one thing I I've missed most during the, the COVID times, we used to host a lot of dinner parties. And so I'd use it as like a platform to sort of test out recipes, but also, you know, like you said, introduce, introduce people to new stuff and just like, man, COVID's just not been a good opportunity to do that, no. <laughs> which is unfortunate. So, um, I'm hoping that, uh, I'm curious to see how the holidays are going to play out and everything. So, um, would you how much of an impact do you think the the times of COVID have had on uh, the outdoor world up in Minnesota? Well, it's definitely, um, I know for me, I had a couple of different turkey hunts uh, planned in the spring that ultimately had to cancel just because just nerves about it all kind of starting and stuff. Even though when you're out in the woods, I mean, you're, there's no, there's no issue there, but the, the process of getting there, um, and just everything that was going on. I think it made people pause, but on the flip side, there's definitely been a lot more people going out. Um, outdoor recreation has like skyrocketed since it's happened. Mm-hmm. So, um, in a way, I think it's, it's a good way of kind of hitting the reset button and, and getting people outside more, um, checking things out. Maybe they've just never had time for it. And now they suddenly did. Um, I, I guess it depends on where you're coming from, but, it's, uh, I was also working on an article recently with Rough Grouse Society, and there's kind of the, the flip side where, because of COVID, it's it's um, put different demands on, like, paper products. Um, so, like, grocery stores aren't printing a bunch of flyers and stuff, and in one case, it kind of served as, like, the final final nail in the coffin that shut down this paper mill in uh, one in Minnesota, one in Wisconsin, and so it's it's a huge amount of wood that's now not going to be harvested each year 
which has trickle down effects to grouse, other you know early successional kind of wildlife species. So it's there's all kinds of facets depending on where do you, you want to go. Do you think that 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 will negatively impact them or positively? The... That that one would be a negative because it's it's like I forget how many acres. It's like tens of thousands of acres, like in Wisconsin alone, that won't be harvested each year, and so mm-hmm. that just it gets more mature. And you know, there's a lot of bird species. Um, I mean, deer, porcupines, and stuff. They all use a lot of young forest too. So without that that regen coming up and providing a lot more food and browse for them, it's um, it could be a challenge. Because a lot of the older trees with the the shading and stuff kill off kind of uh, new growth. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And there's unless they're like oak trees or apple trees, some kind of mast for um, for wildlife to eat. There's really no food, you know, in a mature forest. So um, after they do like a thinning or a clear cut for forestry operations, I mean it. It regrows so fast and produces just, I mean, literally t- tons per acre of food. So, and so you do a lot of uh, a lot of freelance writing as well, uh, and you're involved in what Project Upland? I am, yeah. Um, started writing kind of on the side, um, just because it was interesting for me to write about <laughs> several years ago, anyway, and um, do a lot of the writing based on that my biological background, and so I write bio kind of related habitat articles or um, uh, just hunting content for a lot of different brands. But um, Project Upland is definitely one of them I've written for probably the longest. And um, have you heard of the Project Upland podcast at all? Uh, I have heard of it. I I can't say that I've tuned into a lot of episodes, but yes, I've heard of it. Yes. It's a lot of obviously Upland Upland hunting related Mm -hmm. content, bird dogs, um, stuff like that. Um, but with that, there's been a ton of like mentoring going on through connections made there too. People like tune in either to the podcast or um, reading the stories that they hear and just the, the experience of being outdoors. Um, it's not just about the kill and the trophy shot. You know, it's about being outdoors, experiencing that new places, um, bringing it back to the food as well. And so it's, it's been encouraging to see a lot of people kind of coming coming to hunting through those kind of stories of, of upland hunting, which five, six years ago seemed like it was kind of on a downward trend in a lot of States. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, looking on social media, definitely see a lot of more people stepping into that realm, especially too. I think a lot of, uh, it's an easy transition for people who really like dogs. I find, mm-hmm. I mean, I may be making incorrect assumption there, but, um, kind of goes with it. Dogs are like the gateway drug for a lot of hunting <laughs> in a way. I've heard a lot of people that uh, got got a bird dog kind of unknowing and then just want to keep them busy and keep them, yeah. you know, interested. So they get into all the activities that go with that and end up becoming a hunter. So the dog is the mentor, I guess. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um. It's crazy to think too, because like Upland Games, sort of like one of the one of the last frontiers for using dogs with with hunting too, because a lot of states are sort of like shutting it down. Um, which is interesting because I wonder, I wonder how that'll affect trends of hunting in the future if if it becomes starts becoming more popular and people want to expand. Um, yeah, that'd hmm. be interesting. Be interesting to see. So. 
So what is, uh, what's sort of the best way for people to connect with you? If they want to reach out to you uh, with any questions or. Yeah. Go, yeah. Go right to the website. It's probably the best way. Um, just zero two T O hunt.com. Um, mm-hmm. You can reach out to me there. I've got a lot of articles on there to uh, just kind of catch up on anything from hunting skills to, you know, if you're just totally starting new and don't know where to start. Um, or, or you can go to Instagram or Facebook too, and just look up zero to hunt. But yeah, always happy to, if I don't know the answer, like I said, I'm mostly a Midwest hunter, but if I don't know the answer, I, I've probably got some kind of connection with like a conservation group that could, um, get you more involved. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, Corey, do you have any, any last thoughts for us? No, I just, uh, just, uh, want to say thank you to Ryan for coming on and talk to us and it's it great, great talking to you. Yeah. Thank you both. Good, yeah, good conversation. Absolutely. Um, Ryan, do you have any, any last thoughts for us or for the, the listeners out there? No, I think so. I think it's just, um, it's encouraging to see, um, again, with like the overlap and focusing on the food and just the, the potential scale of effect that food can have <laughs> getting people involved in this is just, it's cool. And so it's, it's nice to make these connections and I uh, get to chat with you guys about that and how, how your readers are kind of responding to that too. So yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I, I definitely thank you for being on and uh, it was a very enjoyable conversation and we got to talk some wild game cooking and eating and uh, definitely always enjoy that. So uh, I will encourage everyone to go out there and check out Ryan's social media, Zero to Hunt, uh, his website as well. And once you're done checking that out, head over to whatever social media platform you're on and check out Harvesting Nature. Make sure you're following us if you're not already. And um, outside of that, our show notes, as you know, all these great recipes we've talked about, both Ryan's recipes and our own, will provide some links in the show notes that you can Click on those and go straight to the recipe when you're when you're ready to make uh when you're ready to make some venison shank stew or some tuna burgers or whatever you have on hand or you're even gonna experiment with some some steelhead like Corey. Uh we'll we'll, we'll, gi- we'll give you some direction. But um thanks everybody for listening and uh have a good night. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv through the blackwater bayous and in the dark louisiana night floats a duck camp alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of cajun cooking Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.